In some communities, it is still traditional for Christians to gather for worship on Good Friday afternoon. The service, if it follows the old custom, lasts for three hours from noon until three o'clock, marking the three hours of darkness that descended upon Golgotha at that same time as Jesus hung on the cross. It's also customary to meditate during this service on the seven last words of Christ. These are the statements that Jesus spoke from the cross from the very beginning of his ordeal right up to the end of it. Today on Groundwork, we begin a series of programs exploring these seven words. The first word from the cross, like several of the others, is actually a prayer. A prayer, in fact, that we each need ourselves. Stay tuned. Welcome to Groundwork, where we dig into scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Scott Jose. And I'm Dave Best. And Scott, as I said in the intro uh, just now, we're starting a new series of programs. It's especially appropriate, I think, for the Lenten season, sure. the season of Lent, as Christians uh, sort of prepare for Holy Week and Easter. But it really focuses on what is the central fact of the Christian faith, and that is the cross of Christ, or the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. Right, and it has long been noted by many people that Christianity is unique among the world religions in a number of aspects, but one of the key aspects that differentiates Christianity is we're probably the only religion that kind of glorifies in the death of our leader. The cross is an instrument of execution. It's the end of the road. It's ba it was bad news back then. It was an electric chair. It was a hangman's noose. Uh, there's nothing good about it, all things being equal, but we call the Friday that he died Good Friday, and the New Testament is very clear that all of our salvation somehow, paradoxically, against all odds, spins out of the death of Jesus. Our life comes from his death. Right. In fact, it is odd. It's just that we've gotten so used to it, but imagine somebody taking a, a little silver copy of a gallows and putting it on a chain and wearing it right. around their neck as a right. decoration, as so many people wear crosses around their necks. But it actually, historically, the cross did not become the main symbol of Christianity until a little bit later in its history when the spectacle of actual crucifixions had died away somewhat. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, the truth remains that the gospel message, what the New Testament calls the good news, that's what mm -hmm. gospel means, mm -hmm. centers on this fact that Jesus died on a Friday afternoon uh, under the hands of Roman executioners in the worst, the most horrible way possible. And this is the message that the New Testament says is the heart of our proclamation to the world. Right. We didn't. They didn't uh, cover up the death or say, oh, that was just sort of a hiccup in Jesus' career. Uh, Easter is the main thing. Easter is exceedingly important, but you don't get Easter without the cross. And so, in uh, for instance, in 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, in the first chapter he writes, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So there's the yeah. contrast. Paul himself admits celebrating a cross 
is just foolish. That's just right. that's folly. That's silly to the worldly perspective. But in faith, we see it as the portal to life. It is. That's such a fundamental passage, I think, uh, for the whole understanding of Christianity. We preach Christ crucified, Paul says, not just Christ, not just his life, his ideals, his wonderful teaching. Mm-hmm. A lot of people admire Christ in right. that in that sense. But no, Paul says, it's Christ crucified. It's the death, that terrible thing that happened, which is the at the heart of our message for the world. That That's the hope that we offer. It, it, somehow it's bound up in what he calls in this passage also the message of the cross. Yep. That is to say, the message that explains what the right. cross means. So that's what we preach, Paul. So that's kind of what we're going to do in this seven-part series, preaching the cross of Christ through the words of Christ from that cross. These are gathered from the four Gospels. Not all of them are in any one Gospel, and a couple of them are only in one Gospel and not the other three and so forth. But here, here they are, just real quickly. One, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Two, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. Three, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And four, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Five, I thirst, the shortest of the words. Six, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And seven, it is finished. So those are the words, and that's the order in which we're going to be taking them in this particular series. Uh, there's there's a little bit of an order to them, but uh, it's a little bit fluid. So that's the order we're going to do them in. One of the things we can note here too, Dave, in this first segment as we launch this series, I mentioned just a moment ago that no one gospel has all seven of these, and a couple of them are only in one. The one we're going to do in program two, woman, your son, son, your mother, um, that's only in John. But that's one of the characteristics of the Gospels. Critics pounce on this sometimes, but the fact is that the accounts don't completely line up point to point in the four Gospels. They didn't write completely consistently on some of the events. And although critics say that that shows that they're, they're all just made up, actually what that shows is their authenticity. Yeah, exactly. It's the reverse of they're just made up, because if they were just made up, they would have put their heads together and get right. the story straight. Uh, right. If you're going to have a conspiracy, you better get your story straight. Right. right. So the fact remains that the Gospels all differ from one another in various ways, including in their reporting of the words from the cross, as you pointed out. Three of these sayings occur in Luke, three of them in John, and one of them, that fourth word, the most terrible in in some respects, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's reported by both Matthew and Mark, and they don't report any of the others. So you could say the same thing about the accounts of Easter and the resurrection. There are little minor differences in the way they tell the story, and partly that can be put down to the witness. Different people remember different things about the same event. Ask four different people what happened in that car accident at the corner of Main Street and First Street, and you'll get four slightly different versions because they all have a slightly different angle on it, but that doesn't cash out the truth at the core of it. Another thing we should mention just as we get started here is that although there have been certain movies, particularly that Mel Gibson movie some years ago that were very graphic about Jesus' whippings and and the crucifixion, um, and some of us have heard sermons where the pastor gets very graphic about what happens to the human body, the Gospels are very restrained. They don't, the, the fact that Jesus dies 
is very, very important. How he died, they're very restrained. They don't get gory. They don't uh, linger over over blood and spittle and whips. Um, so they're very restrained because they really want us to focus on the fact that this is a sacrifice. Right. And as we're going to see in just a moment, we'll read Luke's account of the crucifixion. And he doesn't go into detail at all. He, he simply says, there they crucified yeah, him. That was it. Uh, everybody knew what that involved, but uh, they don't you know, go into at great lengths to kind of show it or verbalize it for us. Because as you say, Scott, I think the point is it's much deeper than what Jesus suffered physically. He did suffer physically. Terribly, we'll see that. Yes. Uh, we will see that in some of the in one of the words in particular mm-hmm. when he expresses his great thirst. But basically, the things that he said and what he suffered and experienced there have a deeper theological and spiritual meaning. And that begins with the very first word from the cross, as we'll hear in just a moment. We're glad you've joined our Groundwork Conversation. If you're enjoying today's discussion and want to download or listen again, you can find the audio podcast and transcript for this episode on our website, groundworkonline.com. Want to dig deeper? You can also find episode guides and blogs available to supplement your study. Curious about another episode or series we've mentioned? Search our episode library to find hundreds of conversations about God's Word and what it means for God's people today. Add your voice to our Groundwork conversation by visiting groundworkonline.com. And thank you. Support from listeners like you makes Groundwork possible. I'm Scott Jose, along with Dave Bast, and you're listening to Groundwork and the first program in a series uh, of seven programs on the seven last words of Jesus from the cross. And uh, Dave, we're going to get right into it here on Luke chapter 23 to get at the first word uh, that we're going to consider in this series. Right, and this is uh, Luke's account of the crucifixion. As the soldiers led him away, that is from the judgment seat of Pilate and uh, the last of his trials, They seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. Two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said he saved others. Let him save himself, if he's God's Messiah, the Chosen One. And the soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. So... Among the horrors of crucifixion, there's the public humiliation, there's horrible physical suffering. You end up dead, of course, above all. But there's also the mockery, the sneering, the taunting of Jesus. And since Jesus had touted himself as a powerful Messiah figure, they play on that, saying, you know, you were going to save other people. You can't even, you know, lift a finger to help yourself. Uh, You know, jump down first, and then we'll see if you can save anybody else. So really horrible, horrible mockery. Yeah, and it actually began before the crucifixion. Uh, If you know the story in the Gospels, the soldiers first mocked him. Even before that, when he was tried before the chief priests, they mocked him there. They blindfolded him and slapped him across the face and said, hey, prophet, you know, prophesy who hit you. 
that kind of thing. And the soldiers with their crown of thorns that they jammed on his head and they, they put a cloak on his shoulders as if he were the king. Somehow they they got wind of the fact that his, this involved kingship in yeah. some sense yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that Jesus claimed. Yep. So they mocked him and made him a mock king. Uh, so it's as bad as it gets, which is all the more reason why the word from the cross we're looking at in this program is all the more powerful, unexpected, utterly remarkable. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. All of these heinous acts, all of this mockery, he's saying they, they don't know what they're doing. That They don't know I'm God's son. They don't know that I really am the Messiah. They have, they're just lost in their own sinfulness, so forgive them, Father. They, they don't even know what they're doing. A word of grace uh, at a moment when vengeance spewing out, you know, invectives against these people is what you would expect. Instead, from Jesus, we get forgiving grace. Yeah, uh, you know, and the very first word of the prayer, so characteristic of Jesus, Abba, Father, mm. uh, the the word that he taught his disciples to use when they prayed, the word that he himself had used a few hours earlier in the garden, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. I mean, Jesus did not look forward to the the cross. He did not relish it. He did not enjoy it. No. Uh, He asked to be spared it if it was possible. And yet somehow in the, the terrible calculus of forgiveness, of God's grace, the cross had to happen in order for that forgiveness to be offered to us. And so for Jesus to win forgiveness in a sense for the world, including those for whom he prays here, he had to undergo this torture. And really, even though at a moment of torture and humiliation and mockery, you don't expect a word of forgiveness, really, this keeps Jesus very consistent with who he had been all along. Um, I think we've said before on other programs, we've made the analogy that, you know, we as ordinary human beings, we have some sense for the sin that goes on around us in our own life, but in our neighbors and so forth. Well, Jesus was the perfect son of God. He he sensed every sin, every bad attitude, every, you know, piece of jealousy and envy and pride and greed. He knew it his whole life long. And he just kept forgiving as he went along. He kept forgiving. He was never shrill. He, he didn't, you know, scream purple face at people. He just again and again forgave. He, he exuded oceans of grace in his ministry. And it continues now on the cross. Right. Yeah, he, you could say, to put it quite simply, Jesus practiced what he preached. Right. If you know anything at all about the teaching of Jesus, you know that one of his most difficult commands which he gave to those who wanted to be his followers, who wanted to be a disciple, was forgive your enemies. Forgive those who mistreat you. Forgive those who mock you. Slap you, yeah. Turn the other cheek, all that sort of thing. Uh, You think of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And then Jesus actually appended to the Lord's Prayer just to make sure we got it. If you don't forgive, your Father won't forgive you. Yeah. It's been said that that little word as in the Lord's Prayer, just two little letters in English, two little letters in Greek, too, is the most explosive word. Forgive us our sins as we forgive others. If you don't forgive others, you're showing that you don't get it. And as Jesus now, as God's own son, is being put to death and humiliated and mocked, you know, we could sort of say, you know, he was able to forgive. Has anybody ever done anything that bad to me? Yeah. Uh, and the answer, that's a kind of a rhetorical question. The answer is, well, of course not. You're not God's son, so it's impossible for anybody to do something that bad to you. 
So if Jesus could forgive, it sets the agenda for us in our lives too. You know, I, I remember a story. Uh, I was in India. I was traveling in India, and I was about to uh, preach at a church in uh, northeastern India. And just before the service, someone came in with the terrible news that in another state nearby, an Australian missionary named Graham Staines and his two young children had been burned to death by a mob mm. literally the night before. Mm -hmm. And uh, they had been out in a village and they were sleeping in their car and these villagers were whipped up by some anti-Christian hysteria. They surrounded the car and uh, set it on fire. And I mean, just horrible. Yeah. Well, the conclusion of the story came sometime later when the widow and mother of these children was interviewed on Indian television and was asked about the people who had done this to her family, and she said, uh, I forgive them. Mm. And the interviewer said, blurted out on television, if this is Christianity, India should be Christian. Mm. So it's as we follow Jesus, even in, in the most horrible kinds of situations and are able to say, as he did, Father, forgive them that the gospel is powerfully proclaimed right. all over again. Because that kind of grace is the only thing that can snap the history-long cycle of vengeance and revenge. Jesus on the cross is saying, that stops with me. You know, death just leads to more death. Vengeance just leads to more vengeance. Something's got to stop this whole series of calamity that began in, with, in the Garden of Eden. And Jesus says, it stops with me. Uh, and he says it from the cross, uh, from which uh, our life um, flows. So uh, there's one more phrase in this prayer that we want to consider before we end, and that's what we'll turn to next. What does it mean to be a Christian and a fan of movies, music, television, and video games? I'm Josh Larson, editor of thinkchristian.net and host of the Think Christian podcast. I invite you to join us for faith-filled reflections on pop culture. Visit us at thinkchristian.net or search for the Think Christian podcast, where we'll be talking about what it means to be a follower of Christ, even in the playful moments of our lives. You're listening to Groundwork, where we're digging into scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Scott Jose. And I'm Dave Best, and we've been talking about this prayer of Jesus, the first word from the cross, Father, forgive them. And who's included in that them? Well, right. you could say it's the Roman soldiers yep. pounding uh, the nails in. It's maybe the chief priests and the Pharisees who kind of engineered this. It includes Pilate, the crooked judge who knew Jesus was innocent and yet condemned him anyway. Maybe the disciples who all ran away. Maybe even the one who betrayed him, right. uh, the one who denied him. Uh, all those people, the crowd that was mocking him on the cross, the crowd that shouted crucify him, all included in the them. But maybe it doesn't stop there either. No, in fact, many of us uh, during the Lenten season uh, sing that, that old German hymn. And uh, we, many of us uh, who grew up in the church, we know the one stanza, who was the guilty? Who brought this upon you? It is my treason, Lord, that has undone you. Twas I, Lord Jesus, I it was denied you. I 
crucified you. And so we put ourselves into the them, forgive them, partly because indeed Jesus died for all of our sins. It's our sin, my sin, your sin, our collective sin that brought Jesus to that cross. So this is a forgiving word for us too. And again, Jesus, as we said at the uh, near the end of the last segment, Dave, Jesus stopped that history-wide cycle of uh, vengeance and retribution to say, no, grace has to lead the way home. And we're included in that grace even now today. Yeah, and he also adds this qualifying phrase, which I think makes it even more interesting and, and maybe prompts us to think a little more deeply. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, as though to say, well, they're acting in ignorance. And maybe that somehow helps to excuse what they've done. They didn't realize what they were doing. I mean, the soldiers, that pretty obviously, they're just following orders, right? It's all in a day's work if you're a soldier. And, sure. and the, uh, the centurion says, well, today you're on the crucifixion detail. Go out and see to it. So they kind of go about their business. And maybe the crowd didn't realize what they were shouting for. You know how crowds can get whipped up. And certainly the, the leaders of the people who betray or, or turn Jesus over, you mm-hmm. know, to Pilate, didn't believe he was the Messiah. If they had believed, they wouldn't have done this, would they? Well, of course not. No, right. Exactly. So, so ignorant. But is ignorance an excuse? Yeah. I mean, very often we're not always so sure about that. Although we, we always sort of uh, meet out punishments, even with our kids, you know, when they're really, really little and they do something really, really foolish, we said, well, they didn't know any better. And indeed, they didn't know any better. Now, you get to a certain age, you know better, <laughs> though we forgive both kinds of sins. We forgive both high-handed sins and also those that are, are done in ignorance. So certainly there was a lot of ignorance here. Uh, ignorance is no excuse, um, and certainly it didn't apply to everybody. I mean, the disciples kind of knew what they were doing by abandoning Jesus, but Jesus is certainly qualifying it there. But even those who did know what they were doing would have been included in, in Jesus' circle of forgiveness. But there is a sense, Dave, too, if we think about our own lives today, And sometimes we do something really dumb or we snap at our spouse or we snap at our kids or we just do something really foolish. And kind of when it's over, you sort of say to yourself, why did I do that? How did that happen? How did those words come out of my mouth? It's like I didn't know what I was doing. Now, again, that's no excuse, but God understands and indeed is going to forgive us when we just sort of lose ourselves or uh, lose it, as we say when we get angry. I lost it, kind of lost myself. That's included in in the circle of grace of God's forgiveness, too. Yeah, certainly ignorance is not the same thing as innocence. You you may not have known what you were doing, or you may not have intended to hurt that person. You were just kind of, you know, pursuing your own goals. But nevertheless, uh, the hurt happened. The thing was done. That incurs guilt as well. So Ignorance may be explanatory, but it's not exculpatory. Can I say that? Is that too too big a word? It it doesn't excuse, though it may explain. Yeah, that's right. And this comes up again a little bit. I mean, uh, on Pentecost, you know, and in the early days of uh, the church in Acts, uh, at one point, uh, Peter is preaching in Jerusalem, and he says, you know, talking about Jesus' crucifixion, I know you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers, Peter says in in the early part of Acts. And Paul, when he talks about himself when he was known as Saul, the persecutor of the church. Paul says, I received mercy because I had ignorantly acted in unbelief. So this idea of 
I didn't know that Jesus was the one. They didn't know Jesus was the one. There is some ignorance uh, and some blindness there, and God is willing to forgive that. Yeah, you know, I wonder if we actually realized what we were doing when we told that lie or offended against our own conscience or hurt that other person, hurt our spouse, if we really knew what sin was, maybe we wouldn't be so quick to do it. But nevertheless, our hope really is in the mercy of God. Whether we act ignorantly or quite knowingly, what we hope for is that the Father will hear Jesus praying for us too yeah, I mean, when the, he says, Father, forgive them. The cross was not the last time Jesus said that. We are told that one of the meanings of Christ's ascension into heaven is that he is sitting at the right hand of the Father pleading our cause with God. And I suspect he looks at my life and your life and our lives and more than once he'll say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And the promise of the gospel is God will do that every single time. That's a beautiful thought. Well, thanks for joining our Groundwork Conversation today. I'm Dave Bast, along with Scott Jose, and we'd like to know how we can help you continue digging deeper into Scripture. So visit GroundworkOnline.com to tell us what topics or passages you'd like to dig into next on Groundwork. Groundwork is a listener-supported program produced by Reframe Ministries. Visit ReframeMinistries.org for more information. Our recording engineer is Dodd Morris, and our post-production supervisor is John Reeder. Our senior producer is Courtney Jacob.